Welcome back to another episode of the Legendary Life Podcast. I'm your host, Ted Rice, and this is the show that's all about taking your health, body, and life to that next level. And one of the things I love to do with this show is to bring on people with completely different perspectives and paradigms than what you hear out there in the mainstream media, what you hear from many of the popular podcasters and bloggers and YouTubers, and that's who I have on today. His name is Dr. Stefan Guionet. He is a neurobiologist, an obesity researcher, and a health writer whose work ties together the fields of neuroscience, biology, chemistry, and nutrition to offer explanations and solutions for our global weight problem. He is also the author of the recently released book, The Hungry Brain, Outsmarting the Instincts That Make Us Overeat. And what I'm calling this episode is The New Science of Weight Loss. Now, why am I doing that? Well, think about it like this. If we have more information than ever before in the entire history of the human race on how to get healthier, how to lose weight, how to beat type 2 diabetes, how to get in shape. But at the same time, we have an obesity epidemic that seems to be getting worse, not better. What is going on there? And we're going to get into the wiring of the human brain and why overeating is kind of a natural thing. We're also going to get into where this wiring comes from and why we're wired this way. And most importantly, we're going to get into solutions that you can put into your life to start getting results because at the end of the day, information is just not enough. In fact, as I stated earlier, we're we're inundated with information, but we're not acting on it. And you're going to start to understand yourself better, your habits and tendencies with food better, and we're going to finish it up with some solid solutions that you can implement into your life to start taking advantage of all the research that Stefan has done for us. So that's all I've got to say. This is going to be a game changer interview, a paradigm shifting interview. So without further ado, let's get to the new science of weight loss with Dr. Stefan Guinness. Stefan Guillenade, welcome to the Legendary Life Podcast. Thanks. Good to be here, Ted. I feel like this is one of the most important interviews that I will ever do because you are a neurobiologist, but you study obesity. And for someone who is not up on the latest research and may not understand the connection there, can you talk a little bit about what you do and why a neurobiologist would be studying why people get fat? Yeah, yeah. So I I think this is a really great question to start with. And the reason is that I think it's often not intuitive to people why we would be interested in the neurobiology of eating behavior or obesity. And the more I think about it, the more that strikes me as really surprising that it wouldn't be kind of the first and most obvious place to look. And for the simple reason that the brain is the organ that generates all of human behavior, and we know that behavior is the primary contributor to eating. I mean, it's behavior. Eating behavior is a behavior, so the brain obviously generates that. We know that's highly related to body fatness. We know that 
Physical activity is a behavior generated by the brain as well. And we also know, and this is something that's maybe less commonly known, but it's known in the research community and research on this is really expanding, but the brain also regulates a lot of physiology. And physiology, just to define that term, that just means the normal functioning of the human body. So pretty much everything that's happening in your body over the course of normal functioning, we would call physiology. So the way that your liver is regulating blood glucose, the way that your gut's regulating satiety, your metabolic rate, how much fat is being released from your fat cells, the levels of glucose and fat in your blood. I mean, all of those things are influenced by the brain. And it's it's not that hard to imagine why that might be. The brain is the information processing organ of the body. And so it takes in all of the information from inside your body and from outside your body and uses that to guide your behavior, which is how your body interacts with the outside world, as well as your physiology, which is what's going on inside your body. So it's when you think about it in that way, it's pretty obvious that the brain would play a central role in food intake and and body fatness. And so that's what led to my interest in the neurobiology of obesity. And my research in that area comes from uh, work at the University of Washington that I did as a postdoc with Mike Schwartz. And so we were studying, we were using animal models to study the brain circuits that regulate eating behavior and obesity and, and or excuse me, eating behavior and body fatness, because the brain actually regulates body fatness, which is something we can get into later if you want, and how those processes change with obesity. And so one of the things that I felt was really cool was kind of coming to the realization during that work that I was really, I felt that I was looking in the right place. The brain was really the right organ to be focusing on to understand these these things that are, really have a lot of relevance to human performance and human well-being. Absolutely. And 10 years ago, this wouldn't, I don't even think would have been a conversation, meaning that people just didn't think about the brain in that way. And Stefan, we talked briefly before we hopped on. I wanted to study neuroscience. I wanted to go in that route when I was 18. And I remember also taking a biotechnology course and the instructor of the course, he's like, nah, don't worry about that neuroscience stuff. That's going to go away. It's all about genes, gene editing, all the, the things <laughs> they were talking about. And now it's like, uh, genes, epigenetics, proteomics, all this stuff. They, it, there's some cool stuff happening, but there is uh, all this other very important and very relevant stuff happening with the brain and how it affects our behavior like you think. And I want to just paint the picture a little bit. Most people think they're completely autonomous, completely logical. In fact, my dad asked me just over Thanksgiving, he's like, Ted, and, and he's not obese or maybe he's a little overweight, but he he definitely has had his ups and downs over the years. And he asked me, Ted, with all the information that we have and all the gyms that are open and how hot fitness is. If you just go on social media or go on the TV, why are people fat? And most people's answers usually come down to, oh, well, there's something in the food that's making me fat. There's endocrine disrupting chemicals. The GMOs are probably doing it. Oh, it's got to be the sugar, the hidden sugar in all the foods. And what you're making the argument of is that 
it's not our willpower, it's not nutrition information, but it's these ancient instincts, these deeper parts of our brains that are influencing our behavior and sometimes without us even knowing it. Can you talk a little bit about most people's or the the misconceptions that you hear from people versus what's really going on? Yeah, yeah, sure. So I think some of this confusion that happens comes from a very simple principle, and that is that we're only aware of the things that we're aware of, you know? And so the things that are happening outside of our conscious awareness in the brain, the non-conscious processes are things that we're not aware of. And so we don't think they're affecting us. We don't realize they're affecting us in many cases. It's really not hard to demonstrate that these things are important. Well, first of all, I'll just say that neuroscience and psychology research is converging on the uh, the fact that most of the processing in the human brain, and I'm talking about the vast majority, is below the level of conscious awareness. When people hear that, sometimes they think of this like Freudian idea that we have all these, right. you know, other personalities and demons and whatever that are kind of lurking down in the the unconscious. And that's why I don't even use the term unconscious. I use the term non-conscious to kind of differentiate it from all that. But I mean, there's a lot of processing that happens and it's very easy to demonstrate in a way that people can understand. I mean, think about your heart rate. That's something that is influenced by the brain, but you don't consciously control your heart rate. You don't have to think about controlling your heart rate. And most of the time you don't have to think about controlling your breathing either. You can control your breathing, but most of the time it's on autopilot, including while you're sleeping. There's so many physiological processes happening in the gut and other parts of the body that are being coordinated at the second to second level by parts of your brain. And you have no conscious awareness of that. And so and it goes it goes even further, too, because, you know, if you think about what a craving is, what is a craving and what is hunger those are things that you're consciously aware of, but you don't really know where that comes from. I mean, you didn't cause that to happen, right? That's just a feeling that arose in your mind that motivated you in a certain way. Absolutely. What, you, why is sugar sweet, right? Yeah, Why exactly. does it taste good? Who made that as a rule, right? Exactly. And you can choose to not act on those impulses, but you can't control those impulses, and you're not the one that generated those impulses. Your conscious mind is not the one that generated those impulses. And so those are just some examples to kind of get people in the right frame of mind about thinking about this. Because I think when you make examples like that, it, it becomes pretty intuitive, intuitively obvious that, yeah, okay, I guess there is a lot going on that we're not in direct control of. And so, yeah, the, the concept that you laid out is exactly right. And that's the, the drum I've been banging lately is that these non-conscious impulses, these are things that are deeply wired into the human brain. And they're things that have a very important impact on our behavior. And so understanding what those are and trying to influence them in a way that aligns them with our positive, rational, conscious goals, like having a healthy diet, having a healthy physical activity pattern, staying lean and healthy, those I think are some pretty productive ways to think about how we can improve our lives. Yeah, absolutely. And, and you've done that beautifully 
as far as I've read in your new book, The Hungry Brain, Outsmarting the Instincts That Make Us Overeat. It's such an important, important perspective that is missing out there. In the intro, you talk about a couple different things that I think are, I just think people don't get this. And I'd love for you to go into it. And the first thing that stood out was that in 1890, 70% of people in the U.S. had manual labor jobs and they ate less calories. And another thing that you point out is that we often blame the institutions in this case, like the, the government for putting out bad dietary guidelines but but the statistics say that we're not even following that stuff. So could you paint the picture of what life was like in 1890 for us and, and how it's changed and why that's important to being overweight? Then maybe we'll knock down some of those myths that people keep pointing fingers at institutions and dietary guidelines. But it's really us. It's our behavior that we need to be accountable for. Yeah, that's exactly right. So. Prior to the turn of the 20th century, this country was a profoundly different place in terms of um, our diet and lifestyle habits. And I think it's it's sometimes difficult for people to appreciate really how much things have changed because we tend to have a view that's very focused on you know our own lives and how they are right now. And especially those of us who are younger, I'm 36 years old. I was born in 1980. And I mean, my most of my life, I I don't feel like our diet and lifestyle has radically shifted since the time that I was a teenager. Maybe people who are older feel differently about that. But if you look at the numbers back in the 1890s, things really were radically different. And so as you said, most jobs were manual labor. And we're talking about hard manual labor too, for, to a large extent, you know, working in a factory on an assembly line, putting things together, Actually, I don't know about assembly lines specifically, but working in a factory, putting things together, um, working on farms, farm labor was huge. If you think about all the labor saving devices we have today, like dishwashers and clothes washing machines and dryers and many other things like that, they didn't have those things. Kitchen mixers. I mean, you had to do all that stuff by hand. And so built into the fabric of daily life was a relatively high level of physical activity for most people, unless you were wealthy, then you had help and then you were just as, you know, almost just as likely to be overweight as people are today. But the diet was also profoundly different. And so one of the things you see is that at that point in history, almost all of the food that people ate was food that was prepared at home. So they would go to the grocery store, they would buy single ingredients typically, and then they would come home and cook it. And I'm talking about even simple things like bread. Some people bought their bread. I think that's been happening for a long time. But a lot of people were actually making their bread in the United States, at least the the, uh, statistics bear that out. And that changed radically, I mean, really quite gradually. And I think this is why people maybe have a hard time conceptualizing this is the change was very gradual, but it ended up being really quite radical to the point where Today, we spend about half of our disposable income on food eaten at home and half eaten away from home, whereas we used to only spend about 7% of our disposable income eating away from home back back in the late 1800s. 
And I think that those numbers really don't even quite convey the magnitude of the change because a lot of the food that we eat at home today is actually commercially prepared food, things like frozen pizzas or you know, fries in a bag and not necessarily all unhealthy food. I'm, I'm giving unhealthy examples, but it's not necessarily all unhealthy. But the point is that it's commercially prepared food, not food that's been prepared in the home. And a lot of it is unhealthy. But one little asterisk I want to put on this is in the context of these discussions, we tend to have this vision of our former diet as this, you know, idyllic thing that was more ancestral and more natural. But in the late 1800s, that wasn't necessarily the case. There was a lot less obesity, but people were eating a lot of white flour. I mean, that was around the peak of white flour consumption in this country. It's gone down a lot since then. But basically what happened was we had all these technological innovations throughout the 1800s where agriculture and transportation and storage had these huge advances that made it much easier to produce white flour and make it available, whereas that used to be an expensive commodity that only wealthy people could afford. And so basically there was still that concept that this white flour is this affluent, delicious food. And so people, the common person, once it became cheap, started eating huge amounts of it. And yeah, it became one of the wealthy person, right? Yeah, exactly. And it became one of the cheapest sources of calories, too. And so by the late 1800s, especially in communities that didn't have a lot of money, you had very high consumption of white flour. And that was before they knew about vitamins. And so you had a lot of deficiency, deficiency diseases as before they knew about vitamins, before fortification. There were a lot of problems, but obesity was not one of the problems. And I think that relates to the fact that they were making simple foods at home and they had high levels of physical activity and their their food environment was just very different than ours is now. But another point I want to make from this is that, you know, there are all, all these claims that refined carbohydrate is the cause of obesity. And I think looking back at history, and I'm not saying refined carbohydrate doesn't contribute to obesity, I think it does, but looking back at history, we can see times when refined carbohydrate was even more prevalent than today and it wasn't causing an obesity epidemic in that context. So right. at the very minimum, I think what that suggests is that it's a little more complicated than that. Mm. Yeah. And I've followed you for a while and I know you, at least on Twitter, you put out, you, you share a lot of studies talking about ancestral lifestyles and and what our ancestors may have been doing and how it's different from what we do now. But in your book, you give some more recent examples and the gold standard of this whole, or at least for me, it, when I started learning about this whole idea of like, oh, people used to do things way different before in these indigenous cultures. And now we do things just we're we're incredibly different from we live our lives in a very different way and that was Weston Price's nutrition and physical degeneration and you have shared some other information in your book the hungry brain looking at the Yanomamo Indians looking at someone from New Guinea can you talk a little bit about those comparisons that you make 
between those more traditional cultures and what happened when they adopted a more modernized lifestyle? Yeah, absolutely. So there's kind of an overarching principle here that I like to emphasize because I, I think it's really kind of a good way of organizing your thinking on this. Sure. That is that traditional cultures are limited in technology and they're limited in affluence. And so they're limited in their ability to satisfy their own innate food and lifestyle preferences. Whereas today we have a lot more technology, we have a lot more affluence, and basically we can cater to our hardwired preferences for food and for lifestyle and for sedentary behavior that to an extent that we've never been able to do before in history. And so when you look at these hunter-gatherer cultures, I mean, eating too much over long periods of time is really not a concern that they have. The concern that they have is eating enough. And this is true in any non-industrial culture, almost any non-industrial culture you look at. And it's not that they're necessarily on the brink of starvation. Most of them are not on the brink of starvation. But that doesn't mean that calories aren't important because calories are very important for both immunity and reproduction. Hmm. So if, if you, and I'm talking about not just enough calories to keep your you know, metabolic functions happening, but I'm talking about enough calories to ramp things up and expend more calories than you would typically expend. So to have some reserve capacity. So the immune system is a huge energy hog. And if you look at what kills people in the wild, the quote unquote wild, you know, really traditionally living societies, infection is one of the probably the number one cause of death. So if your immune system is not quite functioning as well as it could be, you're going to die of some kind of infection and especially as children. So children who, you know, cause that's even more of a problem for children as their immune systems develop. If they don't have enough energy, they're going to succumb. You see this still in lower income communities in Africa and other parts of the world. If you don't get enough calories, you're going to get some kind of diarrheal disease or something like that, and you're going to have a high risk of dying. And furthermore, we know that having kids requires a lot of calories, right? I mean, yeah. you have to make, as a woman particularly, you have to make a baby, you have to make breast milk. And as a man too, in most cultures, the man is partially responsible for providing calories to his family. So you have to have that capacity to bring in enough calories to do all those energy intensive things. And if you don't, then you're going to pass along fewer of your genes and natural selection is going to select against you. So that's kind of the basic principle for thinking about why our brains are so focused on energy. For literally millions of years, energy was one of the primary determinants of the natural selection process that gave rise to what our brains are today. And so you have these cultures these hunter-gatherer cultures that, I mean, really, the way that their brains work is perfect for their environment, like the Hadza. But it's the same in any hunter-gatherer culture, but I'm going to use the Hadza as an example. They're a hunter-gatherer culture in Africa, and they're, they're one of the very few, maybe the only true hunter-gatherers left on this planet. And what they do is their hunting and gathering strategy is focused on getting the highest possible calorie return rate 
So calories gained minus calories expended, that's the primary, when you model their behavior, that's the primary determinant of, you know, what resources are going to go after. And so they're going to go after the things that deliver the most calories, like big game, honey is a big one. Tubers are not super calorie dense, but they're really easy to get. And when they have a windfall of calories, so if they kill a big animal, especially if it's fatty or they get a bunch of honey, they exhibit extraordinarily gluttonous eating behavior. Mm. I mean, they will eat pounds and pounds of meat at a sitting. They will literally drink a pint or up to a quart of honey at a sitting, just like it's a glass of milk. Just drink it. Oof. They'll eat huge amounts of nuts, huge amounts of fruit. When it's easy to get, when it's readily available, they will just absolutely gorge. That's how the human brain is designed. It's designed to be opportunistic. When you have a resource that's easily accessible and highly beneficial, you take advantage of it to the maximum extent possible. It's like finding a $5 bill on the sidewalk. Of course, you're going to bend down and pick it up. It's really easy for you to do. That's kind of how the human brain is set up. And the, the problem now is that we have those exact same impulses. Those impulses are hardwired. Those aren't things that we mull over in our rational brain. Those are impulses that are hardwired in the non-conscious brain and that we perceive as motivations when we feel those motivations. But again, we're not generating those motivations. We're not controlling those motivations, although we can choose to act on them or not. I'd love to interject there for a second, uh-huh. Stefan. So many people think that if they're overweight or obese, that there's something really wrong with them. Like they're a failure, they're a loser, they have no willpower. When in actuality, or at least in the majority of cases, I guess you would agree that it's just people aren't aware of what's driving their behavior. They're not aware of a word that you used earlier and you use in your book, the food environment and how we're just, our brains are kind of working against us. And, and you, you mentioned a term in your book, something that I think I first heard from, uh, I can't remember the guy's name, but he was a big fan of barefoot running, but it's an evolutionary mismatch, a mismatch between how our genes are wired and the functionality of the physiology after, you know, the genes sort of develop the brain and, and all the hormones and all those other things. And then the environment. And you've done a great job of telling us how the U.S. used to be different, telling us how hunter-gatherer societies are very different and how that they exhibit the same types of behaviors you see in like your industrialized societies where they gorge on things. Can we dive into some of the the brain parts without going too deep into maybe the neurophysiology and, and the neuroanatomy? Can you tell us What's at work with our brain, our hormones, and those non-conscious influences that are driving our behavior many times without us even recognizing it? Yeah, absolutely. So first, I I just want to say that address the thing that you brought up initially, and that is, you know, people feeling guilty or responsible for being overweight and obese. It's my belief that is actually normal to be overweight or obese in the context of our current society. I mean, we're surrounded by so many influences that are pushing us in that direction. It's really not 
that surprising doesn't seem like any particular failure to be gaining weight in this scenario. And secondly, differences in body weight between individuals in our current environment are primarily attributable to genetics. So differences in body mass index are about 70 to 80% of that in the context of the modern United States is attributable to genetic differences. So, I mean, yeah, so basically how, you know, how you chose your parents is the number one determinant (laughs) of whether you're fat or lean. I want to clarify real quick that that doesn't mean that environment doesn't matter. It really does matter. And people with the same genes, there's a lot of nuance around what that finding actually means. But without getting into the detail, just to, to give you the bullet point, environment can still have very, very profound impact on body fatness, even if you're a person who is genetically susceptible to obesity. But if you just kind of go with the flow and do what everybody else does, genetics are going to be the main thing that determine whether you're fat or lean in a particular environment. So so 70% of us, if we're already kind of predisposed to becoming overweight or obese, and if we just go with the flow, we're going to become that way almost definitely. Sort of. Just to clarify a little bit, what it means is that, so if you look in a population of people, you're going to find people of all different weights, and that's the the so-called variability in weight. And 70% of that variability is explained by genes. So it's not exactly the same as saying 70% of us are genetically susceptible. So genetics affect body weight in all of us, and we're all on a spectrum, but 70% of those differences are explained by genetics, 30% are explained by differences in your environment, like what kind of neighborhood you live in, what grocery store is near you, what shows you watch on TV, stuff like that. But I mean, yeah, I mean, I think most of the people who are obese or overweight are probably there mostly because of genetics. Most of the people who are lean are probably there mostly because of genetics too. And (laughs) I'm just thinking of all the fat shaming people out there and they've just, you know, it's just kind of painting a different picture listening to you of what's really going on. Please continue. Yeah, yeah, I, I totally agree. It, I honestly think that, that a lot of lean people really enjoy being kind of self-righteous about their own behavior and pointing out the behavior of people who are overweight or obese. And I think that they like to assign virtue to themselves. They like to believe that their leanness is the result of good decisions that they made rationally and consciously. And I think the genetic evidence really argues against that, that most of the reason they're lean, honestly, is that it was handed to them genetically. Again, that doesn't apply to everybody. There definitely are people who are, you know, diet or exercise nuts that maybe would have been overweight or obese otherwise, and they aren't because they have healthy lifestyles. And that that is something that happens and is real. But I think most people they're just kind of lean because that's how their their bodies are set up. And but they like to believe that it's due to rational decisions so that they can assign some virtue to themselves and some lack of virtue to other people just as a way to kind of feel superior. So anyway, that was responding to the first part of your question, but I'm trying to remember what 
the brain the physiology. The Sorry, Stefan. I, I yeah, do yeah, like yeah. these three part questions. I know everybody's like, oh, <laughs> like eight questions in there, Ted. So, yeah, the second <laughs> part was on uh, brain physiology and what's going on at work with our brain, the hormones, with what's leading to these non-conscious impulses that so many of us are, are just unaware of. Yeah. So I think there are probably a number of different brain functions that are contributing. And I focus on a few of the ones that I think are most influential in my book. And I want to emphasize that this is not just some nebulous concept. We really know quite a bit about what the specific brain regions and specific brain processes are that are contributing to our excess eating behavior and excess body fatness. So I'll just mention a couple that I've looked into in some depth as a way to kind of illustrate these principles. So one of them is something that is referred to as the energy homeostasis system. And this this is a system in the brain, a part of the brain called the hypothalamus, which is on the kind of bottom center of your brain, really small brain region, very, very ancient. And this part of your brain specifically regulates, among other things, the amount of body fat that you have on your body. And so it kind of works like a thermostat. So your thermostat, you set it to a specific temperature. Let's say you have it set to 68 degrees. If the temperature starts to fall, there's a thermometer in there that measures that drop in temperature, and then it sends a feedback signal for your heat to kick on to bring the temperature back up. So if it goes down by, you know, down to 66, detects that and brings it back up to 68. So that's kind of how the hypothalamus works. It measures the amount of body fat that you carry via a hormone called leptin, which is secreted by your fat tissue in proportion to its size. So it gets in your circulation, it goes to the brain, your brain says, aha, you have, you know, however much body fat on your body. The key thing is your brain really is looking for a certain level there. Your brain is accustomed to a certain level and that's the level it wants you to have. And typically that's the level that you're currently at unless you've specifically been trying to lose weight lately. And then what happens is if that signal goes down and the way that signal goes down is if you are losing body fat or and or if you're eating fewer calories, that signal goes down and your brain says, hold on, wait a minute, we're losing fat here and I really don't like this. Yeah. And so it, it initiates a suite of responses through its connections with many other parts of the brain that's designed to oppose that fat loss and get you to bring the fat back. And so it does, it increases your hunger levels. It means that you have to eat more at a meal to feel full. It means that you pay more attention to food. Your attention processes are altered. It means that you have more cravings, especially for calorie dense foods that would really bring that fat back quickly. It means that in many people, they become less motivated to do physical activity. It shuts down your metabolic rate. If you lose sufficient weight, it's, it starts to disproportionately lower your metabolic rate, so you're burning fewer calories. And you may also feel cold and sluggish as a result of, of all those things happening. So it basically does everything it can to, to bring the fat back. And it's very persuasive. And the, the evidence for that is not hard to come by. You see almost any weight loss approach, almost any weight loss approach will cause people to lose weight. It doesn't matter if it's low carb, low fat, paleo, whatever it is, 
will cause people to lose some amount of weight. But if you follow them long term, what you see is that people have a very hard time maintaining that. They tend to go back up to their previous weight or at least close to it over a period of, of years. And we know that a lot of that has to do with this system that does not want you to lose weight. It's literally a starvation response. That's exactly what it is. You see the exact same thing in people who are starving. And you see the same thing in people who are born without the leptin hormone. Because that hormone, when there's none of it, your brain's like, holy crap, we are just about to die of starvation. And these kids are just insatiable. They want to eat everything. And so it, it's really cool. Yeah, let me, let me interject for a second because I feel like there's people listening right now who know that situation very intimately. And for anyone who's listening, and if you've been on a weight loss journey and you're like, oh, I start to cut back my calories, I started losing the weight, I was so happy, but then somehow I was less likely to follow through with my workouts, more likely to give into my cravings because we only have so much willpower in our stressed out, crazy modern lives. And if you notice that you keep coming back and going on what's called the yo-yo diet phenomenon, then this is what's at work. And I want you to pay attention to it. And Stefan, this is one other way why I tell people don't try for dramatic change so quick. Don't try to lose a lot of weight because this is what you're fighting. And I'd love to hear your thoughts on that. Is it better to approach weight loss slash fat loss from a more gradual perspective so that we don't over don't have this over exaggerated starvation response so i'm going to answer your question but i want to take a step back for just a second and add one little additional piece of information and that's that so your 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 brain regulates body fatness around this kind of comfort point uh, this level that it expects this level of leptin that it expects but that level goes up in some people and so people who are overweight or obese they're defending their weight around a higher set point. Mm. So it's as if the thermostat has been turned up. That system still works perfectly well. It defends their body fat level against weight loss, but it's set to a higher level. So that's genetics. That's the genetics you were talking about, the 70% genetics or. Let me put it this way. That process is influenced by genetics, but it's not determined by genetics. So I think it's the same situation where both genetics and lifestyle can impact that. But we don't have a full understanding of how that works. That's what my research was on. We were talking about brain physiology, hormones. You talked about what you call the fat thermostat and the hypothalamus, yeah. how we all have a set point, how it up or down regulates our different influences to either bring back the body, to bring back the body fat when we're trying to get rid of it. And you said there's some other important mechanisms as well. Yeah. And then, sorry, there was a question that you asked. The last question you asked me was something else. And I, and I can't remember what it was. I was about to answer it. Yeah. Whether people should try to lose fat gradually. Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. Versus very quickly to not exaggerate that, that starvation response. Is that a real thing or what are your thoughts and what does the research show? It's intuitively appealing. The idea that we should do it gradually, feels less risky, it feels more sensible. But actually what the evidence shows is that rapid, extreme change is more effective. Interesting. Um, 
Yeah, yeah, it's pretty consistent. When you put people on a very low calorie diet for a limited period of time, there are, I think, multiple reasons for this that I'll get into in a moment. You tend to see greater final weight loss and you tend to see better weight loss maintenance. So I think there are a couple of reasons for this. And one of them is that, yes, you do see a larger activation of the starvation response. But if you lose 50 pounds quickly versus gradually, you're going to have about the same level of starvation response once you get to that 50 pounds. So the question is, you know, once you get to that 50 pound loss. So the question is, what's the likelihood that you're going to be able to maintain this intervention for the amount of time that it takes for you to get there? And that's where fast weight loss really has an advantage because it may be an extreme intervention, but it takes a lot less time to get there. And people can be motivated for a period of weeks, maybe a period of months. They can be really motivated to, to achieve a goal. But eventually you're going to get worn down when you're fighting your non-conscious brain all the time, every day. You're going to get worn down. And I think that's one of the big problems with slow approaches is it gives you lots of time to get worn down before you achieve your goal. So the other thing is that there is an emerging literature, and this is not something that I'm necessarily ready to hang my hat on quite yet, but it's an interesting idea that I've been tossing around in my head that's consistent with some some research, is that when you kind of shock your body with a very a period of kind of extreme negative energy balance, and that means a lot more calories leaving the body than are coming in, you kind of start to reset some things in the body in a way that you might not with the less extreme protocol. So you see, for example, just to give you one example, there are a couple of studies now showing that if you put people with diabetes, I'm talking about type 2 diabetes and not necessarily people who are who have been diabetic for a long time, but if you put them on a very strict, very low calorie diet for just a, a few weeks, I think maybe eight weeks, you can literally reverse their diabetes. Wow. I'm talking about reverse, not just improve. You can reverse diabetes in the majority of people in that situation. If you look at what that's correlated, you can see that excess fat is going away in the pancreas, which is the organ that secretes insulin. You're seeing some pretty profound metabolic changes. That doesn't necessarily mean it's a permanent cure, I'm sure those people could redevelop it eventually, but you're kind of giving yourself this really powerful shock that I think starts to reset some of those deeply ingrained metabolic issues that that people have developed. And I wonder, and again, I don't have direct evidence for this, but I wonder whether the very, very low calorie diets might reset some things in the brain as well. And I'm not talking about a complete reset, I'm talking about a partial reset, because that would explain why people are, tend to be able to maintain their loss better after those types of interventions. And there is limited evidence on this. So I, I published a paper, it was in mice, but I published a paper a few years ago showing that if you take mice that have been obese for quite a long time, from a fattening diet and you put them back on a very, very strict, healthy diet. I'm not talking about a calorie restricted diet, no calorie restriction 
no deliberate calorie restriction involved. I'm just talking about putting them on a very healthy, unrefined, lower calorie density diet. You see that they essentially almost complete reversal of all the problems. They lose a lot of their excess body fat, most of it. All the changes in the brain that we're measuring in the hypothalamus that that we find correlate with this damage that causes you to maintain a higher level of body fatness mostly resolves. So you really, at least in mice, again, this is, I'm not claiming that this same Understood. thing would happen in people, but there's at least some, you know, suggestive evidence somewhere that this is possible. This is something that could happen. And that's, that's something that I would invoke as a possible explanation for some of the evidence that we see in humans. Well, you're being the the excellent scientist that you are, and you're not making outlandish claims like uh, so much of the health and fitness industry. And thank you for teaching me something because that's why I have experts like you on because I don't know everything or else I just do all the shows by myself. So it's a real <laughs> privilege and honor to have you on here to help clear up some of the misconceptions that people listening have, as well as myself. So it's so a faster, more aggressive approach. If you're looking to lose fat, can reverse type 2 diabetes. And when you say a hypocaloric or, or calorie-restricted diet for eight weeks, are we how calorie-restricted are we talking about? Is there a number that someone right now listening could implement and shoot for, or does it matter can you give us more details on maybe how someone could follow that? I'm, I'm not 100% sure that these numbers are, are right. This is just what I remember off the top of my head about the study. But what I recall is it was something in the range of 500 calories a day for eight weeks. Whoa. And these, these yeah, it's very, very it's low. low. So these people, yeah. yeah, yeah. Like I said, it's it's an extreme intervention. And these people were overweight and obese, so it's not like... You know, you might you might want to consider other options if you don't have much excess body fat to lose. But right, this is not for the people who are like, oh, well, just this three pounds that I need to lose around my midsection. Right, and basically, and, and again, I, I'm not sure about the details of this particular study, but typically, what they do for things like this is they give people a nutritionally complete food supplement, so something like a shake or bars or things like that that have all the protein and essential vitamins and minerals that you need so that your body is not breaking down, it's not breaking itself down. Really all it's doing is experiencing an energy deficit and drawing on your your fat reserves. So it's just a way of kind of covering your nutritional bases but not covering your energy requirements. That's so that's the concept this, behind this it. This is not something that you anybody would want to follow unless they did that is what you're saying, unless they got the supplement that the people in the study were taking. I think you could design it on your own. You could probably do it, you know, using Whole Foods, but it, you'd have to be pretty thoughtful about it. You'd have to really think pretty hard and, and know what you're doing, I think. Not to say it, that it's impossible at all. And, you know, we're talking about eight weeks. It's not like you're going to, you know, die of vitamin <laughs> A deficiency over a period of eight weeks or get scurvy or anything like that. It's an extreme intervention, and so people want to be pretty conservative about it. And typically, these things are done under doctor supervision, and I think that's what's recommended, that it be done under doctor supervision. And I can't say, you know, I'm not going to say whether or not I agree that that's necessary, but I will say that it's possible 
to do it without doctor supervision. And the other thing that that can be really helpful about using pre-prepared weight loss foods like these high protein shakes and things is that it sets very, very clear limits on your food intake. So it's been shown that if somebody else is making all the decisions for you about how much food you're eating, such as the rule is only eat this food that we deliver to your door, it's a lot easier to lose weight because you're not having to make all these decisions in your kitchen about what you're going to eat and what ingredients you're going to use and measuring this and that. Your only decision is to eat the food that you're provided and stop when it's over. So it, it really simplifies things and increases adherence. And also the high protein nature of those um, shakes and bars and things. Typically, they're very high in protein and that high protein, lower fat and carbohydrate tends to suppress appetite. And so people actually typically report that after adjustment period of a few days, they don't even really feel that hungry. They feel good. They have high energy and stuff. And so I think that, and I'm not saying that would, would have, obviously you can't stay on that forever, but in over a period of weeks, I think that that is something that people experience and report. It's an effective approach according to the evidence that we currently have. Very interesting. Even though yo-yo dieting is something that happens, but maybe with the 1200 or 1500 calorie per day diets, but you're saying this, this very low calorie 500 per day with these high protein, you know, balanced out shakes or, or bars can be super effective and can possibly reset some things in your brain. So you don't have that exaggerated starvation response that drives you to sit on your butt or seek out uh, some highly caloric foods like cookies and, and muffins and, and whatnot. Stefan, we're coming up on our time. Or do you have a little bit more time for a few more questions? Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And let me just clarify a couple things here. Absolutely. One is I don't, I don't want to give people the wrong impression that this is like a cure or something. To the typical response is there will still be some rebound weight gain after that loss, even with these approaches I'm talking about. So I don't want to give people the impression that this eliminates weight regain or that this is like some silver bullet. It's not, but it does appear to be more effective than typical approaches. Duly noted. So in your book, you have a part that has some practical steps and that's what I'd, I'd like to focus on now. You have six steps for a slimming lifestyle and we've already talked about this hypocaloric diet and how that could be something that that really helps people. Can you talk about some of the steps that you mentioned, perhaps the ones that you think are misunderstood or underappreciated? Yeah, sure. So I think that most people are not necessarily going to want to do that approach that I just outlined to you with the very low calorie diet. Most people aren't going to want that. They probably oh, don't need terrible. that. Oh, it sounds terrible. I'm, I'm yeah, not yeah, overweight, it, but <laughs> it I would sounds terrible. Do, I would do it if I had type 2 diabetes. I'll tell right. you that right now. I can't recommend that for like liability reasons, but if I had type 2 diabetes, I would do that. That would be like the first thing I would do. Wow. But anyway, putting that aside, I don't think that's necessarily what most people need or want. And frankly, by far the best strategy is prevention. You're going to get 
way more return on your effort and way more efficacy if you prevent fat gain rather than trying to reverse it once it's already established. And that's for the reasons we were talking about. The brain kind of locks that in. Once it's up there and once you're comfortable at that weight, your brain doesn't want to lose it and it matches your appetite and energy expenditure accordingly to maintain that higher level. So the best thing you can do is just prevent that from happening. And before getting into the the six steps that I outlined, I want to kind of throw something out there, just kind of like a, a little fact that I think is really helpful. Sure. And that is that most weight gain in the United States, and I think this is true probably globally, but certainly in affluent countries, is associated with the six-week holiday period. And we are in that right now. This is the period of the year where people gain more weight than any other time of year. And most of that weight, they don't lose after the holidays. So it ratchets up their weight every year when we go through this six-week period. It ratchets up their weight and they tend to hang on to that only to build on it the next year. So Is this all like uh, modern society, like UK, Australia, places in Europe? So I don't have specific data on anywhere besides the United States, Germany, and Japan. But I can tell you that it happens in the U.S., Germany, and Japan. And gotcha. I think it's likely to be just kind of a general principle. So, yeah. So I, I think that the point I'm trying to make here is that the six-week holiday period represents 12% of the year. So that is a, a window of time where we can get a lot more return on our effort than during the rest of the year. So if we're really focused on preventing holiday weight gain, we can prevent most of our annual weight gain by a relatively small amount of effort relative to what we would be doing if we were vigilant all year. So that's just kind of a little fact I want to put in people's heads to keep in mind. So I think one of the steps that's most important and not necessarily appreciated in proportion to its importance is the food environment, controlling your food environment. So your food environment is simply the foods and the food cues that surround you each day. So that's mostly at home, mostly at work, but also on your way to work, billboards, driving by fast food restaurants, seeing logos, advertisements, that sort of thing. And we know that the human brain is very reactive to the cues that surround it. And this is true of any animal. And it's true of humans as well. We react in proportion to the things that are around us. So if I put a plate of donuts right in front of you, right under your nose, you're more likely to eat it than if I put it two feet away. You're more likely to eat it than if I put it five feet away you're less likely to eat it if it's two feet away, even less likely if it's five feet away. And we're talking about trivial differences, right? This yeah. is trivial. These experiments have been done. I'm not just pulling this out of thin air. And then if I were to put it somewhere where you can't see it, like in a drawer, you would eat even less. If it was a drawer that you had to get up and walk across the room to get to, you would eat even less. And we're talking about big differences in intake from these absolutely trivial effort barriers and visual barriers. So you're not getting the cue and you're having to expend a little bit of effort that can have a huge difference. And these, these are just little illustrations of the, the power of the food environment. So what you really want to end up with 
overarching principle, you want to end up with a food environment that makes good choices easy and bad choices inconvenient or difficult. And so at home, you don't want to have any tempting calorie dense foods within sight. You don't want to have them easy to grab. And then all the things that are in your home, you want to be things that you feel like are supporting your health and nutrition goals. And things like raw fruit, things like nuts in shells, where you have to expend a little bit of effort. Like I have a big bag of peanuts that are in shells and they're unsalted, so they're not super tempting to begin with. If I'm genuinely hungry, I will go and I will shell peanuts and I'll eat them and maybe I'll have an apple. But if I'm not genuinely hungry, I'm not really going to open the bag and start shelling peanuts. It's just a little bit too much work and it's not <laughs> enough of a reward, you know? Yeah, sure. So that's just an example. That's the food environment. I think that's very, very important. Another thing that I think is underappreciated is food reward. And that's the motivational value and pleasure value of food. So different foods motivate us to different degrees. Most people aren't as excited about celery sticks and Brussels sprouts as they are about ice cream and cookies and pizza and, and whatever, just on a, a very visceral craving motivation level. Oh, yeah. And I'm no saint. I'm not immune to these things. I have a hard time resisting pizza. I have a hard time resisting cookies or whatever when they're in front of me. I, you know, and that's those impulses that are in my brain. I would turn it off if I could, but I can't. And so I try not to put myself in those situations and I try to watch the reward value of my food. So the more tempting and pleasurable that food is, the more of it that I'm going to eat, the more of it that, that people tend to eat. And so, and it's, it's more than just passive overeating. There are actually connections in the brain between those pleasure and motivation centers and the parts that regulate your appetite and your body fatness. And when you start eating foods that your brain perceives as highly valuable, so those are those foods that you're intrinsically motivated for and intrinsically get a lot of pleasure out of, it starts to shut down your fullness mechanisms and it starts to allow, basically facilitate the consumption of larger amounts of those foods that your brain instinctively views as really valuable to your body. It's that um, hunter-gatherer drinking that pint of honey all over again, right? Exactly. I mean, from a hunter-gatherer's perspective, pizza would be an amazing score. <laughs> I mean, that pizza would probably literally, at least in some ways, literally be good for them because that's delivering them the calories that they need to fight off infections and have babies and trek around six miles a day around their environment and climb trees and lift rocks. And so the brain is hardwired for those things. And it will sweep away barriers to the consumption of those items, such as the inconvenient fact of feeling full. But at the same time, you have, you know, you have to enjoy your food to some extent or else it's not sustainable. So I don't think the answer is to eat hyper bland foods, even though that does help with weight control and appetite control. I don't think it's especially sustainable. And so you have to find a balance. And for me, what that balance is is I try to eat foods that are satisfying 
I try to eat foods that are made with quality ingredients, but not eat foods that are so, so delicious and so, you know, crave worthy that I tend to lose my normal control over eating them, you know? And so it's, there's definitely a gray area, but I think people intuitively understand this principle. And I think that it's an important one to, to apply to your diet for weight control. Those are two out of the six guidelines. Yeah. Fantastic stuff. And I think it's just, I think we're moving in this direction with health and fitness information, specifically with nutrition, that it really is all about the food rewards, the food environment, how how our brains are causing us to do things that sabotage our efforts to maintain a, a good level of body fatness, of health. And it's just a pleasure and an honor to have you on, like I said before, because you're one of the people out there who are putting out this information that, I mean, this is this is so invaluable. It's so important. And it answers the questions and fills in the blanks that so many people have as to why they can't get the results. And there's so many people who are who are exploiting that and selling them things that aren't backed by science, that you know, maybe sometimes they work or maybe not, but you're putting something out there that's helping people start to empower themselves. So thank you so much for coming on the show today, for talking to us about your book, The Hungry Brain, Outsmarting the Instincts That Make Us Overeat. And if you're listening right now, you just had an amazing education about the cutting edge science of, of what these guys know, of what guys like Stefan know about what's really going on, why we're overweight, why we're unable to control ourselves. And I highly recommend his book. I've just started it. It's amazing. And Stefan, where would you like people to go? We'll put up the link to your book in the show notes, of course, but is there anywhere where you'd like people to go to learn more about you and, and to purchase your book? Yeah, sure. So my blog is wholehealthsource.org. And uh, I, I'm going to be migrating it soon, but that URL will continue to work. And my book, it's available in a number of places, but currently it's probably the easiest place for pre-order. It's available on Amazon and it'll be released on February 7th. Excellent. So fantastic. And again, if you're listening and you've been struggling with with your weight, struggling with getting results and you're exercising and you're doing your best to watch what you eat, go on over, pick up this book so you can you'll be ahead of I want to say Stefan 95% at least of the health and fitness professionals out there. I mean, I even learned a bunch of new things, but one thing in particular, you said that a more drastic approach happening at the beginning can be to, can lead to more long-term success. So just imagine what you'll learn when you read this book. So fantastic. Stefan, was there anything that I didn't ask you or we didn't talk about that you think people listening need to know? I mean, there's a lot of other things I could get into that are that are in my book, but I think we covered a good amount of material for one day. I hope you had a good time. We'll have to get you back on for round two. You're just someone who I really feel like people need to know more about you, know more about what you're researching so it can benefit them. Thank you. It was my pleasure.
Welcome to the Ted's Takeaways segment from the interview. This is where I'm going to discuss some of the biggest takeaways from the episode. In case it was a bit high level, perhaps it was a bit sciencey, perhaps it was a, a bit like drinking from a fire hose, I'm going to distill some lessons down for you and keep them short, keep them simple. And the first lesson is that there is nothing wrong with you. You are completely normal. You are wired to eat. You have a hungry brain and it's getting you to make all sorts of unconscious decisions about your choices with food. That said, it's our responsibility to start to manage those choices. And and what did Dr. Stephen Guinea talk about? He talked about food environment. And I want to refer you also to Dr. Brian Wansink's episode as well, because if you haven't listened to that one, Dr. Brian Wansink talks a lot about how to structure your food environment. And Dr. Stephen Guillenet is talking about why it's so important because of our wiring. So make sure you listen to both episodes. Make sure you put into practice some of the tips to manage your food environment, like storing those pretzels, cookies, ice cream, whatever, as far away from you as possible. And as far away doesn't mean in your cupboard or in your pantry. It means really put get a, a freezer and put it in the laundry room. Store your pretzels in the, the laundry room. Store all that junk in the laundry room. Make it harder for you to go and get it because if it's out there on your counter, you're going to be more likely to eat it. And of course, you can just not even buy those things to begin with. That's what I do. That's what I practice because otherwise I'd be a really overweight guy. That's the truth. I have uh, pretty strong cravings. I love ice cream. I love junk food. I just happen to manage my food environment better than other people who have the same tendencies as me, but don't employ those tactics. So manage your food environment. And again, there's nothing really wrong with you. You're completely normal if you eat too much, if you're driven to eat, if you emotionally eat, that's all normal. However, it is still your responsibility to deal with it. So the second thing is make sleep a priority. When we're sleep deprived, we know it's well documented that our satiety hormone leptin goes down, our hunger hormone ghrelin goes up, and you're more likely to reach for food. And what do you go for? Do you say, hmm, I sure could use a kale shake or superfood salad? Of course not. You reach for the chips, the ramen, the pasta, the cookies, the chips, the ice cream. I think I said chips twice. Maybe that that's a shout out to Martina if she's listening because that's her favorite. That's one of our coaching members' favorite foods. For me, it's ice cream. So make sure that you get adequate quality and quantity of sleep because if you're having trouble managing your cravings, it means that your brain is missing something. And if that something is sleep, then that can be fixed by listening to one of the many episodes on sleep. Just go to legendarylightpodcast.com, type sleep into the search bar. There'll be a ton of things that come up. You can also get our free sleep guide at legendarylifepodcast.com slash free, F-R-E-E, and get the sleep guide if you're a little bit lost on what to do for good quality sleep. And the third thing that I want to mention is manage your stress. In fact, I'll do one more, but manage your stress 
because not only does sleep tend to, to cause us to eat in ways that make us rounder around the midsection or wherever you have your, your trouble spot, right? For me, it's around my abdominals and back. Also, stress makes us do that, right? Food reward. You're stressed out. You had a tough day. You're like, you know what? I'm just going to eat until I feel better. And how do I know this? Because I do it too. We all do it. And when I'm managing my stress, when I'm doing things to make myself feel good, like exercise, like eating healthy food because I feel good after drinking a vegetable juice or eating a nutrient-dense salad, I am less likely to go off track if I can maintain those things. But if I'm stressed, I if I'm unhappy, those are the things that drive me to reach for things that I shouldn't or go eat more than I should or whatever it is. Even if it's good food, if you overeat, it's still going to be a problem. So make sure you manage your stress. And how do you manage your stress? You can type in stress at Legendary Life Podcast in the search bar. A bunch of things will come up. Everything from things that you can do right away, like meditation. Quick one would be download the Headspace app and give it a try. Uh, 10 minute meditation. You won't believe how powerful meditation is for reining in that terrible, wired, but tired feeling that you have if you're under quite a bit of stress. To going on vacation, which is definitely a bit more involved logistically and financially, but super effective. So make sure you do that. And the last thing I want to talk about is you got to move your body. It's not just, you know, it drives me crazy with dieters. They're like, oh, I'm on a diet but I, and I lost weight, but I don't look the way I want. It's like, of course you don't. Where's your muscle? You may even have lost muscle. Some of that weight you are so happy about losing might have been muscle mass, which is not doing you any favors having less muscle on your body. So you need to move your body. And if you want some killer workouts, and I don't mean killer like they will kill you, but well-designed, well-written workouts that won't crush you in the gym, but will actually make you stronger, make you feel better, and put you on the path to progress, then make sure you go to my website, go to the product section there, and we're offering some workouts. And they're well-written. Of course, they're general workouts. So make sure you read the description and make sure you fit the description. And you can also get me to write your own workout. So that's what I'm going to leave you with. Make sure you start to put this into action. It's not about the information. We have enough of it. I want to know what you're doing. So keep that in mind. Implement some of this. And I'd love to hear if you were able to manage your food environment or if this got you to think about things better. Give me an email, shout out on Twitter or Facebook, and let me know. That's all I've got. Hope you enjoyed this interview and I've got many more coming for you. 